go ahead and take a seat. And our little friends are invited to the kids' table to join us for special kids' program where they'll be learning about some of the same stories that we'll be sharing here. So, um, so welcome, everybody. I'm Pastor Chris. It's so great to be with you today and to see so many fresh faces despite the time change, right? So everybody, everybody's awake. And those of you guys online, I'm assuming that you're also awake too. Maybe you're still in your PJs, but that's totally cool. So go ahead and watch this. So we are in week three of our series, Eyewitness, and especially given the time change situation, daylight savings, love it or hate it, I assume you all are awake, so I thought today we would start off with a little bit of trivia. Is everybody up for this? Is your brain at least half function, 50% functioning in some way? Or maybe not so trivia, but a little bit of a puzzle. And um, what we're going to do is, um, this is fun for me, because I know the answers. That's the, that's the good part. But um, we're going to have three questions here, and they're going to be up on the screen, and I'm going to read them for you. And um, they're very easy. I don't want you to think too hard about them. And if you have your worship guide, and there's hopefully pens in the seat in front of you, we're going to go through each question just one at a time. I'm not going to give you the answer, but if you would just... Either write down your answer, number one, two, three, or if you're really good at remembering, you can try to remember those. And then we'll go back and see what the answers are. So this is a little brain teaser just to get yourself going this morning. And you can share these with your friends. Okay, so let's look at this, the first question here. Go ahead and throw that up there on the, on the screen. A bat and a ball costs $1.10. The bat costs $1 more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Okay, so write that down or make a mental note of what you think it is. Okay, everybody got that? Okay, let's go to the next one. Like I said, we're going to kind of go through these quick. If it takes five machines five minutes to make five widgets, how long, oh, I misspelled that, would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? So five machines, five minutes to make five widgets. How long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? Those of you guys online, you can also put your answers there in the chat too. Okay, next one, last but not least. In a lake, there's a patch of lily pads. Every day, the patch doubles in size. If it takes 48 days for the patch to cover the entire lake, how long would it take for the patch to cover half the lake? So write that down, okay? The brains are going. Some people are like, I'm just lost, right? Maybe that's you. Okay, so let's go back to the first question, the bat and the ball. So what was your answer to the bat and the ball question? How much does the ball cost? 10 cents? 
who says 10 cents? 10 cents? Anybody else say something different? Okay, one in the back, the outlier, Jake, Jake Edmonds. What, what did you say? Five cents, that would be correct. Interesting. So, so you think about that. If the ball costs five cents, a bat costs one dollar more than the ball, what is that? A dollar five, and what does that equal? Add those together, a dollar ten. Isn't it interesting? Your brain just automatically jumped there to be like 10 cents a dollar. You kind of did that. Okay, let's go to the next one. So you were wrong. Just mark that big X there. You're batting zero. Okay, machine, the machine. How long would it take 100 machines to make 100 widgets? Yes, five minutes. If you said 100 minutes, you're wrong. If you said anything else, well, maybe we have extra coffee out there, by the way, too. So the answer is five. But once again, sometimes like your brain goes and like you're, the easy answer is, is going to 100 or another number. Okay, and the last one, the lily pads. Okay, how long would it take for the patch to cover half the lake? Anybody say 24? 24. It's 47. It doubles, remember? It doubles. So on day number four, or yeah, day number 47, it's half. So then what do you do? You double half, and then you got the whole pond that's covered there. So, but what's interesting is that if you said the not right answer, <laughs> if you didn't say five cents or five or 47, you would actually be in the majority of the population. About 80% of people, when you, and once again, when you don't think too hard about these, if you're just like, okay, just answer these as fast as possible, um, the majority of people answer incorrectly. And I think that leads us to just draw a quick conclusion here from that. Sometimes, sometimes the answer is different from what you've expected or where your brain goes or maybe even what you believe. And if you think about Jesus, if you think about Jesus, a lot of what Jesus taught was exactly like that, not lining up with our kind of instinct um, ideas or expectations, or even our predictions. What Jesus was about was a lot different from what people expected and the way of the world around them. So, so for instance, Jesus, if we look at scripture, we see that Jesus asks us to love in a world where it's very, very easy to hate. Jesus asks us to forgive in a world where it's easy to hold grudges and get your way. Jesus asks us to be patient in a world that gives us everything on demand. Jesus tells us to give, give, to give of ourselves and be generous in a world that says, no, it's about getting and what you can get. Jesus asks us to serve in a world that promotes others trying to, us trying to get others to serve us. Jesus asks us to, to look at the world in, in a world that says, you do you. Jesus says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. And the thing is, if you spend any time to study this and, and look at what the things that Jesus said, the things that were most important about life to Jesus, if you spend any time studying that and, and even attempting to follow Jesus, and I'm a believer that to say you can begin following Jesus even before you believe in Jesus, that you would learn rather quickly that the way of Jesus is not the way of the world, and the way of the world is not the way of Jesus. 
It kind of comes, sums up in the way of Jesus is not the way of the world, and the way of the world is not the way of Jesus. And often in life, often in life, at some point, we all get to a crossroads where we have a choice to make about that, about what to do and how to respond and what to choose. And so today, today's eyewitness account, we've been walking through these stories of people who were there with Jesus um, through Jesus' death and on the cross. And we've been looking through the lens, these stories through the lens of people that were there. We started with Judas and Peter the first week, these two disciples. And last week, we looked at the person of Pontius Pilate and the trial and how Pilate washed his hands and did absolutely nothing. But today, we shift our attention to a different person from the very same story. And we mentioned him last week, and his name is Barabbas. Barabbas. And so Barabbas, if you were with us last week, if not, then you can catch up in the Gospels. It's recorded in, in all of them. That Barabbas was the man that Pilate put up there right with Jesus. And, and in the story, Jesus, in his last 24 hours, Jesus was arrested because he was seen as a threat to the authorities of both the temple and of Rome. He was seen as a threat. He threatened the status quo, even though, even though his approach was not violent at all. And so we're going to read this story again today, and, and we're going to read this. It's the same story we read last week, but this week we're going to read the Gospel of Mark. We're going to read Mark's version. And I want to encourage you, in this Lenten period, um, this Lenten time that we're preparing for Easter, read the four Gospels, at least the accounts of the last 24, 48 hours of Jesus. See what they say, what they don't say. It's very interesting when you can compare accounts and, and see what the authors chose to indicate there. So we're going to look at Mark's version. And, and instead of looking at the story like we did last week through the eyes of Pilate, today we're going to look through the eyes of both Barabbas, the eyes of Jesus, and the eyes of the crowd involved in this situation. And you can follow along in your worship guides. We're going to have that up for the, on the screen here, um, especially for you guys that are online. You can also open your Bibles if you have them. Um, but we're going to look at Mark chapter 15, verses 1 through 15. So this is Mark's account of this story. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man named Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release you, the king of the Jews, asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then? With the one you call the king of the Jews, Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed, asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. So, so the situation here, 
just a, a little bit of a reminder. Uh, what's, what's being celebrated? What is the holiday taking place at this time? Anybody remember or know? It's the Passover. So it's a time, it's, it's a holy holiday when all the Jews would flock into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover meal, to the, being reminded of how God saved them, saved the Jewish people and through Moses and, and through leading out of the desert and in the wilderness. And so also just the, the whole idea of, of what's going on here is very, very important. So Mark, Mark says here, as do the other gospels, that at the time when Jesus is arrested, the custom, the custom is to release a prisoner. And that's apparent, Mark indicates that's what Pilate did all the time. The question is, what custom? And maybe if you're in one of our table groups, our Bible studies, maybe you were debating this or talked about this, what custom? And it's very interesting because there's a problem here. There is no custom. Anybody? So there is no custom. There is no re- recorded Passover custom of somebody being released. Uh-oh, right? What's happening here? And, and so there's no custom that would take place every year, part of like a Passover tradition. So, so what, is, what is going on here? And also just to indicate Pilate himself, we see in the last line here, the last verse, Pilate is a very brutal person. Like he, you know, he kind of was indifferent to the whole Jesus thing. He washes his hands. He doesn't want to get involved. But he's a brutal guy because what does he do to Jesus after he, he sends him away? He has him flogged, right? Like this wasn't just like, a, okay, I'm out of the picture, but he'll go flog him while you're at it, right? That kind of thing. But, but you just look at this, this idea. What, what, what custom was Mark talking about then? If there's absolutely no historical record at all of being a Passover tradition of somebody being released, what was going on here? Well, if we look at some other traditions, if we look at some other accounts, not necessarily pertaining to Passover, but if we look at Pilate's background, being a Roman, the Romans and the Greeks had their own traditions. Very interesting that Mark would point this out. The Romans and the Greeks had their own festivals. Not they didn't celebrate Passover, but they had their own festivals and feasts to their gods. And it was a custom in the Roman culture to release a prisoner. To release a prisoner. But you know what they did? They had to return when the festival was over. It was like, okay, go home, party with your family, and then come back and we'll kill you. Like that was like the Roman thing about what they did. So it's interesting that Mark, as well as other gospels, are, are pointing to the custom of Pilate, but they're emphasizing this Rome, very Roman tradition and how the Jewish people went along with that. They walked along with that in this situation. So now let's, let's look at this person of Barabbas. Who is Barabbas? Who is Barabbas and what did he represent here? Well, his full name is Jesus Bar Abbas. Jesus Bar Abbas. So just a note, the name Jesus is very, very common at this time. Just like the name John or Sam or Joe, like uh, just a very, very common name. There were lots of Jesuses running around. So Jesus Bar Abbas, in some texts which describes this, um, uh, demonstrates that the, the name Abba, the name Abba, maybe you've heard of that if you've done a Bible study before. In Aramaic, it means father. Abba means father. And so bar means son of. So you put those together. So it's Jesus, son of the father. 
Jesus, son of the father. That's Barabbas' real name. Jesus, son of the father. Put up against another Jesus, son of the father, right? These two that are put side by side. Very ironic here. And, and, but more than that, we really don't know much about Barabbas, his personality, about what he actually, who he was or what he was about. This is the only time that he appears in the Gospels. This is the only time he appears in history. We don't have any other historical records of him appearing. But in the story itself, we get some clues about him. So oh, there's a clue in verse 7, which says, A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. Um, Luke says it a little bit more directly in Luke 23, 19. He says, Barabbas had been thrown into prison for an insurrection in the city and for murder. So Barabbas, it's interesting, he was most likely a zealot in Jesus' time. He was associated with the zealot, the party of the zealots, believe it or not. And that didn't mean that he was just a passionate guy. You know, we can say, I'm very zealous for, for this or a certain team, right? Not Dallas, of course. But you could be very zealous for, I, I always have to throw that in there. But anyway, you could be zealous for some things, but the, actually the zealots were an actual group of people. They were a political party in Jesus's time. And their political party believed that the Jewish people ought to arm themselves, create an army, and overthrow the Romans in order to take back Israel. That was what they believed. That was their platform. And outside the Bible, um, the historian Josephus, you can actually read volumes of his history and work. Um, and so Josephus, he doesn't mention this specific rebellion about involving Barabbas. But the thing is, it was probably very, very common at this time. People were having fights left and right, happened over and over and over again. And, and the thing is, these, especially around the Passover time, the Romans and the chief priests got very, very nervous around the holidays because that was the prime time for somebody to rise up and to try to overthrow the Romans. See, about 60 years before Jesus was born, the Romans had come in and conquered the Jews. And so they'd been in occupation, basically, under Roman law for about 60 years. And, and of course, out of that, there was different sentiments, different opinions about what to do about that among the Jewish people. Like, what do we do about these Romans that are really ruling us? There were lots of thoughts. And some people thought, well, we should just get along with them. We're here. It is what it is. Just get along, Right? And others said, well, we should just ignore them, and we should just do our own thing. Others said that we should cooperate, we should become like them, and draw them in, and, and work with them, and, and maybe we could join together with them in that. There were so many different opinions, but the zealots, the zealots said nothing less than armed conflict was needed to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. Nothing less than that. And so I want to be clear about the zealots, though. They, they sound like they're kind of a fringe movement, kind of on the margins, like the crazy people, maybe the, you want to say, like the, the fundamentalist people in that sense, but they were not. There were a lot of people who were aligned with them, a lot of people, some undercover and some not, but they represented an attempt to overthrow Rome. And in fact, so fast forward 30 years, 30 years after Jesus, they actually succeeded in overthrowing Rome. 
They rose up against Rome, at least for a period of time. It was a four-year war that took place. And all the uprisings and riots that took place, they all started out, guess where? In Jerusalem. They all started in Jerusalem, the capital. And so remember, remember in the Passover, all these people are coming from all over, all these different towns. The population has swelled to three times the number of people who actually lived there. So it was the ideal setting for the zealots to do their thing. The crowd expected it. Pilate expected it. And so in that context, I want you to think about Jesus. Think about Jesus entering into that context. So five days before this, we're going we're like, uh, to fast forward and then back up again. But Palm Sunday takes place. We'll celebrate that in several weeks. But five days before this, Jesus enters Jerusalem, kind of called the triumphal entry. The crowd loves it. The people are happy. And why? Well, you can remember some of the things that Jesus talked about, the things that Jesus said. He said he was here to save them, that the kingdom of God is at hand. They expected that he meant all those things super literally and that he aligned with what they were about. He aligned with their expectations and their ideas. They thought that he would utilize the zealots, that he would band together with them. Actually, there were a couple that were part of his disciples, believe it or not, that he would utilize them and throw Rome off the throne and they would reestablish the kingdom of Israel. So he was welcomed He's coming into the capital, remember? The place where the riots are supposed to happen. And so they believed that since God was on their side, their opponents would be punished. They would be protected. But we see in the story, that's not what Jesus did at all. That's not what he was about at all. Instead of drawing battle plans when he came into the city, he preached and shared stories and healed some people. He talked about God's kingdom in a very different way. One that instead of being offensive and drawing opponents was subversive, had no weapons, was very, very different than what they expected. And you can imagine that people got very confused. People got very confused about that. What they had assumed about God and the coming king, the coming Messiah, was challenged in the person of Jesus. And not only that, but like you and me, they're very impatient too, right? I don't know about you, but I stare at the microwave. I I do. You know, it's like, come on now, faster, faster. And that's kind of the microwave mentality that was taking place here. Like some things haven't changed, right? It's Passover, The people are thinking, hey, Jesus, he just entered, like, clock's ticking, it's insurrection time, are you coming now? There's no time to wait to make happen what Jesus had talked about and what they thought about how that was going to take place. So when Jesus was arrested, it was because people were angry with him. People were disappointed with him. People saw that he wasn't aligned with them and what they wanted or predicted or expected. And there's some very interesting thoughts and research that's been done about predictions. There's a whole gamut of research that's been done. Uh, There was one specific study that as I was kind of looking at at some different things about just human beings' ability to predict, um, that between the years 1956 and 1962, uh, the University of Cape Town, South Africa, 
Um, this is a picture of what was taking place at that time up through the 1990s called apartheid. And maybe you recall that, maybe, maybe you studied that in history class, but where there was a separation between the white people and basically everybody else. And there were certain rules about where, if you were a, a, a person who was black or of Indian ancestry, where you could go, where you were not allowed to go. And that's a place up through the 1990s. Well, 56 through 62, the University of Cape Town, they surveyed 500 South African students. They sur surveyed 500 students to predict how they thought the rest of the 20th century would unfold. And so they took those answers and, of course, you know, would look back on them. But it was all really just about in the moment. It's very interesting about what they wrote. And they all wrote about apartheid, about what was taking place. Once again, these are like 20-somethings. And, and it was very interesting because out of those that, that made those predictions, two-thirds of the black Africans and four-fifths of those of Indian descent predicted the end of apartheid. That one day, people of every color would be able to intermingle and go wherever they wanted to, that there would be uh, no rules against that. But the interesting result on the other side was that only 4% of white Afrikaners predicted the same. Why? Why? Well, this study, as well as some others over the decades that have rolled out, have indicated that those who are beneficiaries of the existing state of affairs are reluctant to predict the end of the current state. That we predict and expect and are drawn to support that which benefits us, whether we realize it or not. Our predictions line up with the things that we would like to happen because it's, it's good for us or it would take place. And so let me connect that to this story now. So the choice that Pilate gives was not just about these two men. It was about something bigger. It was the story of our preferred future here. Presents, presenting us the question, what kind of Messiah do you really want? What kind of Messiah do you really want? The main idea is that it all comes down to a choice. Jesus, on one hand, is countercultural. He's not what people predicted. He, he talked, I mean, think about this. He talked about dying and sacrificing. Like, that's not a very an attractive platform, Jesus, right? If you're trying to rally people around your cause. But then, on the other hand, we have Barabbas. Barabbas, the guy who is going to do what you want done, I mean, he's already led an uprising, and he can do it again, and he will do it again. Barabbas, Barabbas is guilty of the same crimes that Jesus, though innocent, is charged. See, people in the crowd, they didn't know these guys personally. They had heard about them and learned what had happened. And they had to ask themselves, whose strategy do I trust? The same way we have to ask ourselves, whose strategy of living do I want to trust in? What kind of God do I believe in? I mean, have you ever been there? Have you ever thought that God was going to do something, but then he didn't? Have you ever had an expectation or even a prediction, and those expectations and predictions never took place or never came to mind as the way that you thought? See, the people in the crowd were probably also afraid of the Romans and what they would do if they knew that they supported Jesus. See, ultimately, though, they didn't trust the way of Jesus. 
They didn't trust what he taught or the way of life he talked about. I bet they were a lot like saying like, well, come on, Jesus, these things are nice that you talk about, that's, but that's not the real world. Like we live in the real world, right? Like you don't live like that. You don't do that. Like, like it doesn't work. And so they went with Barabbas, whose work they saw so clearly and aligned with what they wanted and the way of the world. And the funny thing is, Pilate let them. Think about that. Pilate let them, let an insurrectionist, somebody who had just like murdered people, let him off the hook. Like he allowed that to happen. And it makes you wonder, like, why did he do that? It's kind of a funny thing. Well, maybe it's because he saw the way of Jesus as more of a threat than the easily squelchable way of Barabbas, that they could have Roman soldiers squash these insurrectionists like a bug should they try again. See, it's easy to shut down a fight, but it's not easy to change a mindset and change a heart. See, the way of Jesus is not the way of the world. The way of the world is not the way of Jesus. And I want you to think, I want us to think about this. How often do we choose the way of the world over the way of Jesus? I mean, the point of the gospel is very illustrated in Barabbas, right? We're invited to see ourselves in that figure of him. That the strange justice of God and the strange justice of God overrules unjust justice of Rome and every human system. That God's mercy is what reaches out where human mercy cannot. And not only taking that, but taking on the guilt, on the brokenness that we have. If we place ourselves in the story, we are Barabbas. Let off the hook. Not because of what we've done, but we've done, but because of Jesus. But we're also in the crowd. It's hard to place ourselves in this story. I don't know if you've ever thought about that. Like, what would have I done had I been there? If I were in the crowd, I would never yell, crucify him, right? I would have said, free Jesus, right? Like, free Willie, free Jesus. Like, you're just going to, like, come on, Jesus, come with me. I'm going to save the day here. But when we think about our own lives, don't tell a different story. How often in our own lives are we given that choice? We have to ask ourselves, what kind of Messiah do we really want? And not only that, but that question points to what kind of God do we believe in? What kind of, these pictures, right? These are kind of some demonstrations, maybe at some point, or maybe even right now, you know, God is that, that, they're always like the bearded dude, right? The bearded dude in the sky with the lightning bolt, like, you know, who do you see God? Like, I want to align with a God that's going to get things right, he's going to smite them, right? Smite them off the face of the earth, or maybe he's just sitting in the clouds somewhere, letting things roll as they're just going to happen, like, what kind of God do we want? What kind of God do we believe in? What does God look like? I'm glad you asked that question. Um, the, the University of North Carolina actually did a study of this where they took hundreds of faces of people um, and they showed them to like a whole bunch of people. I don't know what the survey size was. And they asked them, which of these do you think looks like the face of God? And um, it was interesting, this was the result of the compiled, the compiled result of the faces that people selected. So I think they had this whole survey board, like thousands of faces, people kind of went like that one, that one, and that one, and that was their answer. Um, well, they compiled all of those things. And it's interesting, there's no more bearded white man there, so in that result. But, but what was interesting was when they took those results of what people identified as what they thought God looked like, 
people looked, looked and believed, said that they believed in a God who looked like them. They took pictures of the people that did this survey. And would you believe it or not, most of the time, the faces looked, there were similarities, more similarities than not in the faces. The people believe in a God who not only thinks like them, but also looks like them. We tend to do that. Our pictures of God are conditioned by our experiences and our expectations. Not unlike the crowd. And it's important for us to recognize that. And also to recognize that maybe your picture of God has been distorted. Maybe by how you were brought up, or maybe you do still continue to see that God is the God who's going to smite people with the lightning bolt. Maybe your picture of God has been distorted, and maybe it needs to align a little bit more with what Jesus looked like. Uh, the theologian Rowan Williams, he's Archbishop of Canterbury, um, several years back, he said it like this, the self-denial inv- involved in the period of Lent isn't about just giving up chocolates or beer. It's about trying to give up a certain set of pictures of God that are burned into our own selfish ones. That sometimes that picture of God has to change because many of us try to make Jesus into about this blessing machine that God is only about blessing us or smiting us, right? In so many areas of life, though, Jesus challenges us. That there'll be times that we're choosing to follow Jesus and it'll make absolutely no sense at all. I know that in my own life. I mean, the Apostle Paul later in the New Testament scripture says that the wisdom of Christ looks foolish to the world. If it looks stupid and everybody's like, why are you doing that? Like, that's a good thing. That might mean that you're doing things right. And that's probably also why when we look at the world, the world's way makes so much sense to do what's right for you, to feel good about it. But Jesus is calling to trust him. He's calling us to trust him in his way. I mean, several months back, I was talking with a, a, a friend of mine um, who lives out of state uh, about like the, the idea of generosity. And um, he's asking me questions like, why do people like give to the church and that kind of thing? And I was trying to convince him and say, well, you know, I've been blessed in this way and I'm going to give back. And then, you know, there's been times when, uh, you know, I don't believe in prosperity gospel, but there's times when, you know, I've given and then all unexpected, I'm blessed in a different way. And then he still like scratches his head and he's like, well, I don't really understand. Like, yeah, but that doesn't, what if you don't get anything, right? And I'm like, and, and over time I realized like, no, whatever I'm going to say is not going to make any sense. <laughs> There's no convincing. Maybe he's right. Maybe it is indeed foolish. But I have to trust that the way of life of Jesus is better. I I have a mysterious inkling that my my reasoning is not always right. But in so many areas, every day, we're presented with the challenge, the little decisions to choose Barabbas, the way of the world, or to choose Jesus. When we're angry with someone, When you have a job decision that's in front of you and it's like, am I about the money or about the comfort or am I about the calling? Maybe God, where God is leaving me. Maybe there's a competition at work or at school and and everybody's like neck and neck trying to like get one up on one another. Are you about that being the number one or are you about lifting others up? Like all these questions, comparing yourself to people. We do it all the time. What do they have? Oh my gosh, I have to look great. I have to get the latest phone. I have to get this, the latest technology. Or, or have you decided that maybe life isn't about the stuff that you have? When we're confronted with these choices, do we trust that Jesus is sacrificial, costly, loving, counterintuitive way of life is better than the way of the world? 
and the way the world tempts us to follow? Do we trust that God may be doing things differently? Or do we choose to take things in our own hands? So the way of the world is not the way of Jesus. And the way of Jesus is not the way of the world. No matter how many times we try to merge those things and have those things together, the moral of the story, well, actually, I don't know what happened to Barabbas. Nobody really does. Tradition says that soon after he was let off the hook, he led another rebellion and he was killed. And that was the last of him. And isn't that interesting? That's where Barabbas ends in death. And you ask for what, right? But in the end, we have a choice to make. We have a choice daily, weekly, monthly. See, Jesus doesn't always ask us to do things that are going to make sense or that everybody around us in the world is going to point to and agree with. He's not going to ask us to do things that are immediately beneficial to us or maybe even feel good. But he asks us to trust him with a choice, with a choice, with a lifestyle, with a decision, even when it doesn't seem to be the route that we're drawn to in the first place. And the question will always be, do you take Jesus's way or Barabbas's way? And God lets us and gives us the gift of choice and says, that decision is up to you.